When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! I'm an annoyed Austin Hayden because my goddamn computer was giving us tech shit, so if you can hear the angst in my voice, it's because, like Paul Dano, I've read a lot of Nietzsche, and I'm about ready to fuck shit up, and I might just make a vow of silence until uh, the world of technology decides to stop fucking up and doing stupid things. Anyway, I'm joined by I the think, I think the vow of stuff. silence would be a great fit for the podcast medium. <laughs> I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hello. And we've got Ryan. Well, that's up, film fans. And if you couldn't tell by my illusion or by the title when you clicked on the goddamn episode, we're going to be talking about the 2006 instant indie darling classic Little Miss Sunshine, directed by a couple Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, starring Tony Collette. Greg Kinnear, Paul Dano, Steve Carell, Alan Arkin, and Abigail Breslin. And also, Gail the Snail from It's Always Sunny makes a little appearance there at the end, if you're always Sunny fans. Uh, so I just thought that was kind of fun. I am. Who's that? Gail the Snail. She is one of the pageant coordinators. She's the one that helps. Um... Oh, is that um, Mary Lynn Rice Cub? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never, uh, never seen Always Sunny. Oh, damn. What the fuck? That's like heresy. Oh, yeah. It's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's go around. As always, we'll do some first impressions. What was it like the first time we saw it? What's it been like on repeated viewings? And then what was it like this most recent time? Let's go ahead and start with Raymond. Um, I saw this when it first came out. Um, and then I don't think I really thought about it much for 15 years until watching it again a couple nights ago. Because this is... Um, Maybe maybe the most statistically average movie ever made. Whoa! Fighting like words. Not no not. I mean I I mean it in in a sincere sense. I I think it is. It's stupid and contrived, but it's mostly inoffensive and occasionally charming. Um, I cannot recommend watching it, nor can I recommend avoiding it. It is at its best and its worst, utterly mediocre, and uh, I can't. I, I cannot care any less about this movie. <laughs> Can you name other statistically average films that would go into the same tranche as this one? Oh, I mean, I don't know. Not without pissing off a bunch of listeners. Let's hear it. Yeah, fight, fight. Like the, the Sundance, like 500 Days of Summer, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Like, Yeah, if you've seen, if you haven't seen this movie, you have. You've seen this a hundred times because every, every year one of these movies goes to Sundance and plays like gangbusters to all the oxygen deprived people there. <laughs> and then it gets bought for like, 50 million dollars <laughs> and then gets rammed down everyone's throat a year later because it's like the you know the feel-good alternative to all the you know austere dramas and costume pieces and whatever that usually dominate the awards conversation and then um 
Yeah, I don't know. Everyone acts like it's a uh, it's the same it's the same sort of like Cinderella story narrative rinse and repeat every single year. One of these movies kind of runs in this lane of like the little indie that could, you know, this year it's Coda, uh, another <laughs> uh, perfectly average movie. Um so yeah, and I mean, I don't know. There's I'm sure there's there's plenty of them. Um I like it more than him. Uh, but I, 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 I know what you're saying, Raymond, that it is to me when I think of like, what is an quote unquote indie movie, this is like, just jumps to mind as like the, almost like they're making fun of what an indie movie yeah. is. Just a bunch of zany characters kind of all trapped in a, th- in a, in a one location. And it's just kind of, you know, a lot of hijinks go on, but, but it has some heart and charming, but I would say. All those things are accurate, but I think that this one totally works on all on all those levels. Yes, it is. You know, it's 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 not gonna it's not gonna change your life, but it, but it kind of does a little it, in, in small ways. It's about the little things in life, kind of. It's about family. It's about like I guess pe- perfectly mediocre subject matter, <laughs> but I think that it's done really well with really great great performances, an awesome screenplay, cool direction by these good uh, uh, music video directors. That you know, this is their feature de- debut, and yeah, like you're saying, this kind of became like a big indie darling at Sundance, and then everyone was looking for their big Little Miss Sunshine, you know, because this what yeah. made over a hundred million dollars and it cost nothing to make, you know, they're they're in, in a van the whole thing and um the whole time, but yeah, I uh, uh I like it a lot, and like it, it's I also like that like my parents like this movie and stuff, you know. Like this is a movie that that you can watch with your whole family, and I don't think it's like overly lame and melodramatic or something that to where you're kind of like or smaltzy, like a lot of family movies are or end up being. This one has a little bit of an edge while also being a family movie. I mean, you know, the the grandpa's doing fucking heroin, you know, and stuff, and uh, uh, Steve Carell is, you know, the like. Yeah, this suicidal dude in the middle of this uh, 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 otherwise this family vacation. I don't know. There's a lot of things going on that are that are that are deeper than your average family movie, which I appreciate it. He's the foremost. All right, Proust, that's my end of my rambling. Foremost Proust scholar in the country. Um, so, oh, yeah, 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 correct. Second, second foremost, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so the first time I saw this film, it was on the heels of all of the hype, right? And I thought that it was going to like blow me out of the water, and it didn't. And I felt like a little bit bummed. Maybe I didn't know what to expect, but I thought it would be something that would be transformative or super impactful. So the first time I saw it, I didn't love it. Second time I saw it, I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I think it was because I was a little bit distanced from the expectations, and maybe just I kind of started viewing film in different ways. Maybe I was looking for different things. Who knows, right? Um, I rewatched this last night. Well, I started rewatching it last week, and then I uh, wasn't able to finish it. So then I rewatched the final two thirds last night. And I really enjoy this film. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think you know there's some of it that's formulaic. But I think my my way of viewing it this time was more as, and I keep talking about this on the podcast, but was more as like a cultural artifact. Um, like, what is this film offering us as um, as a picture of a particular subculture in the United States? And so for me, what was most potent about this film was looking at this as the sort of... Um, pure expression or representation of the neoliberal American family 
living or striving to live the uh, American ideal, the American fantasy, right? And what comes with that is the fracturing because the ideal itself is full of shit. And the only thing that keeps them together has something to do with like a communal experience. And you could say like, oh, you know, home is where the heart is and we got to just come together and love each other. And I think that's a real saccharine interpretation kind of of what's going on here. Whereas I think there's something much more interesting. And if you follow my other podcast, Owls at Dawn, you know that we did an interview last year with Lars Eyer, who wrote a book called Nietzsche and the Suburbs. He's um, a writer and philosopher. And in that book, he basically um, kind of, it's a novel. He explores this group of like young teens who like start a band in the suburbs in the UK. But the suburban lifestyle kind of transfers quite well. His analysis definitely transfers quite well to the American experience as well. And it's about the sort of malaise that you experience in the suburbs, the malaise you experience of trying to be a winner, like Greg Kinnear's character keeps talking about, and how you get caught up in that kind of like positivity bullshit of the neoliberal ethos, and how it ultimately just drags you in dirt, and it makes things worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you get someone like Paul Dano's character, who in my opinion, is kind of the center of all of them um, because he is like this gravitational force that is like a, a dark cloud and then when he has this big outburst it's truly profound and then he has this moment at the end where he has this monologue about how life is all just one big sequence of beauty pageants beauty pageant after beauty pageant and it's bullshit and so there's something then about this like beauty pageantification of reality that I think this film is really kind of offering to us. And I think uh, what we can do then is we can kind of like unpack that and say, oh, so what vision is this giving us of America and the failures of the American project to be able to kind of live up to the image that it espouses um, as, you know, kind of like the ideal fantasy. So for me, that's what was most interesting about this most recent watch. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I really, I kind of enjoyed it from that perspective. So, but anyway, before we start unpacking things and peeling things apart and seeing in what ways this film is statistically average, and if we can compare other films that are also like little Sundance indie darlings that are also statistically <laughs> average, um, let's go into a quick recap. I do want to give a little reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at smtm underscore pod. That's smtm underscore pod. The um, the the demons that run the little Twitter machine are constantly pumping out good content. So make sure you follow those little mischievous creatures. And uh, yeah, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash wisecrack, and you can uh, give us support that way. Um, so, okay, so for now, we'll jump into a quick recap here. So Cheryl Hoover is an overworked mother of two living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her gay brother, Frank, the foremost Proust scholar in America, is temporarily living with the family after having uh, attempted suicide. Cheryl's husband, Richard, is a type A personality striving to build a career as a motivational speaker and life coach. Dwayne, Cheryl's son, is a Nietzsche-reading teenager who has taken a vow of silence until he can accomplish his dream of becoming a pilot. And Richard's foul-mouthed father, Edwin, was recently evicted from a retirement home for snorting heroin, is now living temporarily with the family. Olive, the daughter of Richard and Cheryl, is the youngest of the Hoover family and is an aspiring beauty queen who is coached by her grandpa. Now, Olive learns that she's qualified for the Little Miss Sunshine Beauty Pageant held in Redondo Beach, California in two days. Uh, Richard, Cheryl, and Edwin, they want to support her. But Frank and Dwayne can't be left alone, so the whole family decides to go. However, things are tight financially, so they decide to road trip it from Albuquerque to Redondo Beach in their Volkswagen van. 
Family tensions play out along the way amidst the aging van's mechanical problems. The van breaks down early on, and the family learns that they've got to push the van until it's moving at about 15 or 20 miles an hour, and then they can pop it into gear. Uh, so they have to basically run alongside the car and then hop in the door once it's at the right speed. Then the van's horn starts acting up and it starts honking unceasingly, which causes a cop to pull them over. Kind of a funny scene. But throughout the road trip, the family suffers numerous personal setbacks and discover their need for each other's support. Richard loses an important contract that would have jump-started his motivational business. Frank encounters the ex-boyfriend who, in leaving him for an academic rival, had prompted his suicide attempt in the first place. Edwin ends up dying... Uh, um, presumably, I guess, was it was that a heroin overdose in the hotel room the day before yeah. the Miss Sunshine competition, which then results in the family having to smuggle his body out of a hospital and nearly having it discovered by the police. And then during the final leg of the trip, Dwayne discovers that he's colorblind, which means he can't become a pilot. So he has this m final breakout of his vow of silence and uh, shouts out his disdain for his family. Olive then comes over, gives him a little hug, and he immediately apologizes, which then leads to them frantically racing against the clock to get her to the pageant. As Olive is preparing for the pageant, the family sees Olive's competition, their slim, sexualized child girls with teased hair and cap teeth and all of that other stuff. And it becomes very apparent that Olive is a kind of an amateur for, uh, of these pageants by comparison. So as her turn is about to approach, Richard and Dwayne recognize that she's probably going to be humiliated and they want to spare her feelings, so they run to the dressing room to try and talk her out of performing. Cheryl, however, insists that they let Olive be Olive, and she goes to the stage. Now, she hadn't revealed what her dance was going to be, but her and her grandpa had been secretly working on it, and we find out that it was a routine set to Rick James' Super Freak, and it's basically a striptease. Now, despite the other girls being over-sexualized, her burlesque performance scandalizes and horrifies most of the audience and the organizers who demand that she be removed from the stage, but instead of removing her, one by one, the members of the family jump up and join her on stage and dance alongside her to show their support. The family completes the dance to a shocked and silent audience save for this awesome biker dad who stands up and miss california who cheer enthusiastically then the family is next seen outside the hotel's security office where they're released on the condition that olive never enters a beauty pageant in california ever again they agree pile into the van with the horn still honking smash through a barrier of the hotel's toll booth and they begin their trip home back to albuquerque end of film all right, before we continue, it is time to give a shout out to our sponsor, Storyblocks. Look, y'all know the deal. We talk about Storyblocks all the time, and that's because Storyblocks is pretty sick, all right? They are the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over a million plus royalty-free high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. And the sick thing is, is they really have subscriptions for every budget, so you can stay on the budget for your projects with affordable subscriptions that scale to meet your needs. So you can create more video and you bring your stories better to life without sacrificing vision due to time, budget, or resources. Honestly, every creator really should have a Storyblocks membership. I use it and it's great for B-roll footage. I use it also a lot of times for sound effects and they have um, all kinds of cool templates and they have motion graphics effects and all kinds of other things pretty much anything you could need if you are a podcast creator youtube creator insta creator tiktok creator media of any sort you gotta have a storyblocks account so head over to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack so you can learn more about what they have to offer that's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or you can click the link down below all right back to the show 
All right, sweet. So now let's go ahead and start peeling things apart here. Um, okay. So let's just tack, uh, tackle this issue of it being kind of mediocre um, or or average, statistically it's average. It's just is this yeah, fine? Yeah. It's not. A, it's not. Well, an it's issue. interesting it's because it. I read a lot of reviews that were actually kind of angry. Not a lot of reviews because I mean it's got you know pretty pretty well praised across the board but a few of the reviews were kind of angry because they thought one it was a bit formulaic and convenient and two a lot of them thought of that as actually not being innocuous but as being quite manipulative because they were like it's so benign that you don't even realize how much you're being manipulated what do you think about that i disagree <laughs> I mean, I guess give me examples of it being so benign. I mean, other than just the conceit of a bunch of, the, you know, this family on this road trip, you know, and having to go to this little sunshine competition. What's the, what's the, what part of this is so mediocre to everybody? Well, benign, I mean, you're, you're saying these reviews are, are implying that the, the movie is not, uh, so mediocre as to be pernicious that it's uh, what what are these things saying i think um maybe we we missed it there the idea is is that it's um it's so convenient and sort of easily digestible and there's nothing confrontational yeah. about it that you don't even the audience doesn't even realize that they're being manipulated along the way that's how some movies should be I don't, but i also it. don't that's know to what end to family what, movie that to uh, what know. end are you being manipulated with this film i don't i mean i don't understand that that critique, I guess just like, your emotions in general, right? It's just kind of like because it's kind of fluffy and and it does kind of wrap itself up in a nice bow, right? With the the whole family dance. That is my one eye rolling part of the movie. Is is me and my friend Greg uh, always joke about this about movies that end in dance sequences, like dance offs, like like that's the big climax, like Silver Lining Playbook, like we were <laughs> talking about earlier. You know, where it's like wow, <laughs> and then the characters danced crazy and. Whoa! They're letting out their, you know, their inner selves, and they're just being them. Silver Linings, like, all right, whatever. Silver Linings Playbook is such a different thing because it's I like know. the entire movie. It's pretending, it's pretending to be a serious drama, and then in the last, I don't know, fucking twenty minutes or whatever, they're like, anyway, we're gonna go dance about this. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah. That's a, a, yeah. Whereas this but, one, I think the the dance number is of a whole. Like, I think it's really stupid, and um, you know, the stuff with the family getting up there or whatever to let their freak flags fly like like i said it's it's uh, i find it mostly inoffensive and occasionally charming but i find uh, it very, charming because you know the very kid, stupid the, the kid i think kids can learn something from that movie and that scene especially you know even though i roll my eyes austin i think i think that you are going to keep prodding me about this thinking that there's some there's something di but i legitimately i don't have anything there there's <laughs> i don't think this is an interesting movie i think there's one interesting I'll aspect of it which is that there there seems to be some pretty subtle like uh, condemnation of the bush administration that's happening sort of in the background um that they they do have like the scene where they're sitting in the hotel room and the parents are yelling and uh Steve Carell says like oh don't don't listen to that and then he puts on TV and it's like George Bush talk, talking about like Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld for all of three seconds and then Paul Dano turns it off and then later on at the pageant itself they're like they're very clearly kind of you know poking fun at the notion of the, like over sexualizing children and stuff like this as 
as you you know alluded to in your um uh in your recap of the movie that olive is doing something that everyone else in the audience finds so uh so gauche and and uh and, and completely out of line but like you're having a fucking swimsuit competition with six-year-olds. Like, this entire affair is disgusting. And then they have the, the like, howdy-doody-ass uh, 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 MC of the event come up and sing, like, America the Beautiful in all these little girls' faces. And I do think there's some some sort of sly satire happening with regards to that. But the rest of the movie is not nearly as pointed. I think oh. that... that, that that actually it's extremely pointed because what I would say is that the film sets up immediately you get um, a really nice intro to each of the six characters or however many there are, right? Um, you know exactly cool. who they are and what their kind of problem is that they start the film off with. And then you bring them all together and you start to realize, I think, at least in my opinion, what is the ultimate cause of all of their problems is that they're trying, they're striving to live to some sort of ideal. Right. Each one of them is striving for something. And I think that that's ultimately then an indictment on kind of this particular form of what Byung-Chul Han drink for those of you out there that are playing your drinking game. Uh, what Byung-Chul Han talks about as like the entrepreneurial society or the burnout society or what he calls like the development of the achievement subject. And the dad is literally that. He's wrote a book about winners and losers. He's got his nine-step program and he's all about like, Olive, you got to be a fucking winner. And he even tries to make the kind of like vow of silence that Dwayne is taking as he tries to incorporate that into his own his own understanding, but Dwayne is literally trying to break free entirely. That's part of the reason he idolizes Nietzsche, which is such a sort of like teenage dude, disaffected, I can't find my place outlet, right? Like Nietzsche, the great like fuck you kind of type of philosopher, which is a very sort of appealing thing. So many people find philosophy through Nietzsche. Um, some never get out of it and some uh, some get trapped in there. But but it's definitely, it's a very sort of common experience of experiencing life in kind of middle class or, or suburban America is to kind of find that kind of figure that's like, I don't want any of that shit, right? So I think that's what kind of like, it's like this pressure that is forcing them all together. And then when you get that dance at the end, the reason the dance for me is so poignant is because it's destroying all of that other stuff that they were trying so hard to hold together, but it doesn't work. And Paul Dano even says, you know, fuck you guys, you are actually all losers. You're bankrupt, you're getting divorced, um, you're fucking suicide, like fuck all of you weak-willed people, which is the sort of like Nietzschean thing, right? And then he then he apologizes when Olive comes over and gives Very him Uber mentioned. Right, right. Yeah. And then he apologizes, which I think is actually really interesting because you can have those moments where you're like, fuck you, you guys are all weak, but then you also kind of, he does care about his sister and he ends up kind of caring and he comes to this realization that actually maybe it's not about the individual, but it's about the society. And that's when he's at the pier talking with Steve Carell and he's saying, you know what? Life is just one sequence of fucking beauty pageants after another, right? It's all this fucking superficial, we're just trying to um, earn some sort of favor by pleasing other people, anticipating that they're going to get some sort of favor. So we fit ourselves into this bullshit system and we can never live up to it. And so then the dance at the end is like a big old fuck you to the whole beauty pageant matrix that they described. So I think it's so fucking funny. <laughs> I'm curious, and I, this is not um, this is not to challenge your thesis. Uh, I'm I'm curious, but you were saying they they all exist within this paradigm of being extremely goal oriented or whatever. I, I think that's really clear with uh, with Olive and Greg Kinnear, and um, obviously Paul Dano has 
structured his entire life and his uh, you know interactions with folks around this uh, this goal of uh, becoming a pilot. Uh, how how do you feel that um, the other three, Tony Collette and Steve Carell, and um, yeah, so Steve Carell, uh, like, what does is... Carell keep saying about himself? I'm the foremost. I'm the foremost. I'm the foremost. Right? He is wearing this badge of honor as being an academic, and as somebody who has spent twelve years in academia. And I and I understand that need for validation. There's this amazing contradiction that you get where they're in the van between him and the dad, where the dad and him are like going at each other. And it's kind of like you have the prestigious scholar who's like, no, this is the academic way. Um, I'm I'm reading this obscure French author that took 20 years to write one book. By the way, I've got the book right there, um, Swan's Way. Um, and so uh, it's read the first 50 pages. It'll blow your fucking mind. Um and then you can just put it down and then say you've read Proust. That's all everybody anyway. Um, so, but he's like he's like the foremost Proust scholar. And then you got this other guy who's trying to write a book and make DVD sales. And, and he's all about commerce. And so there's this – they're both trying to achieve status, reputation, recognition. Sure. But yeah, so that's them. But I mean in like a proactive and productive sense, like I think that he, the grandpa, and Tony Collette are all different than the other three. And I think that's not a – an unfair assessment, right? No, no, I think you're right. There's a difference. I think that the cracks of the system, we might say, are revealing themselves in different ways. It takes mm -hmm. longer. It takes longer for it to be revealed in Greg Kinnear's sure. case. But, but go, yeah. um, go yeah. on. No, no, yeah. So th that's basically it. The grandpa might be the one who's checked out. He might be the well, one who also. I, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah. I, because he's to me the key to the whole movie. Yeah, he wants to. But 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 what's interesting to me about the movie when you break it down and the characters, you know, they're all. At, Obviously, different stages of their lives, right? And also different degrees of how much they have bought into, I guess, what you're calling the system. Or as I would just call it, life, you know? Just like in... Uh, uh, but but yeah, like Olive's just idealistic. Oh my God, I can do anything. I'm going to win the Little Miss Sunshine. You know, Paul Dano is like, oh my God, I'm, you know, super driven because my, you know, uh, but I have my own goals and what I want to do. I think what other people want from me is bullshit like my dad. The dad is obviously the most bought into the whole system and, and literally writing books on it. And then the grandpa is doing heroin, being like, look, I've been through life. Fuck all this shit. Like, none of it matters at the end of the day and whatever. But to me, I, I, I don't know. Like, and uh, 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 I know we've kind of talked about the uh, pursuit of the American dream in lots of movies on this podcast before. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but like, what? I just have a problem with with being like, okay, well, this is a explicitly a critique of the whole thing when you could have a whole bunch of characters being like, look, I'm just buying into – I'm doing what I want to do like a Paul Dano character, which I, I guess the only one that, that to me fits that category is the Greg Kinnear character because he's so driven by what everybody else wants, what society wants, what other people's expectations. He thinks he's figured it out, written a literal book on it. But he's miserable. Not you know he's getting a divorce. It's not working for him, and he's kind of the proof is in the pudding that this doesn't necessarily you know uh, work out if if these are your only things that, things that you care about. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I, I think that that's, I think that's a good way of kind of putting it is, is, is that maybe Kinnear is like the, um, he's like the pure, pure uh, representation of the system Mm -hmm. um and because he's kind of got this strong gravitational force in the family dynamic he exerts that pressure over everybody or at least he tries to right like the dad is kind of like dude fuck you and he tries to like undermine it because he's like bro he's like you're striving and it's all for naught and like he tells paul dan like just fuck a lot of women and just do like just fuck this stuff like, have stop fun trying essentially enjoy just, your yeah, life just fucking have fun enjoy the moment yeah don't try to like toe the party line so to speak you know and then awesome. uh Kinnear tries yeah go ahead oh i was just gonna ask oh no no go on um uh, i no, no, just just how he exerts that pressure over each of the different family members is interesting it's different but i think you kind of see him as like a representation, like a physical embodiment of that thing, trying to exert it over them. And and it takes to varying degrees on each of them, right? Each of them has their own way yeah. of dealing with it or appropriating it or resisting it. He is the patriarch. Um, I was curious, Austin, is there, uh, you touched on a little bit about how um, Nietzsche serves as almost like an aesthetic fascination for Paul Dano's character. Um, but I'm, I'm curious in what way Proust seems like an appropriate thematic choice for a different character to have been fascinated with. What is the as as someone who knows not the first thing about Proust? What what do you think this movie takes from uh, from from that thinker in terms of its framework or its uh, thematic structure? Maybe the sort of romanticization, at least for Carell's character, of the serious, dedicated but neurotic artist, right? Somebody who might take themselves too seriously. And I think you get that with Carell. Part of the reason that he's fascinated with Proust, and this happens a lot with researchers who specialize on a person, right? So in continental Mm. philosophy, which is the philosophical school where I have spent the majority of my time, it's very common to become like an expert or to align oneself with a thinker, right? Or a a particular... teeny little subset right like you might specialize in something that's called like phenomenology you can ascend to the very top of a really stratified field or or a a really a a, a really like specific field yeah i think that that's partly it like a huge part of it and and so like a lot of people might specialize and then you get this in in literature studies as well which continental philosophy and like critical literature um, and, and, and like critical theory studies and, and um, like critical English approaches and things like that are oftentimes overlapping in a lot of ways, which is why you get a lot of philosophers from my school that will end up teaching in French departments or in literature departments or in English departments or something because there's so much crossover. And you do tend to focus on a figure, and I think we idolize them a lot of times, you know, and um, we're gravitating to those figures that maybe we aspire to be like in a lot of ways. Like I was attracted to Sartre in so many ways because I had this romantic idea in my mind of sitting in Paris, sitting out front of the fucking cafes um, and like smoking a fucking cigarette and drinking an espresso and talking philosophy (laughs) while like fucking ballet artists and 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 abstract artists and performance artists and other philosophers and political theorists would walk by and you know like this was like an ideal that i had so there's something about the life that i think is attractive to 
Carell's character that is also kind of an outlier, right? Like, there's something about that that dedication to one fucking book, which then Carell at the end of the book or at the end of the movie is kind of like, was it fucking pointless? This guy's life. He spent 20 years miserable locked in a room where like he just he didn't even finish this this project that he wanted to finish ultimately in the way that he wanted to. So it's like, did he waste his life in it? And maybe Carell is kind of thinking about that, too. There's something there's something about that there that's both beautiful in someone's dedication, but also a sort of like. Um, kind of like there's something sad about it as well. So I think maybe that's that's something that's going on there. Ryan, any any thoughts um, about Carell's character? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I in in my whole thing I was saying earlier about how they're all at different stages of their life. He's obviously the one that is through with it all, you know. And so that's a whole other uh, reaction to the system you can have is just saying I've been spit up and chewed out and uh, and I'm not getting what I want and fuck everything, you know. And, uh, um, well, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that, but <laughs> does, does he learn, does he learn anything at the end? Cause he runs oh, into, yeah. What, what do we think he learns? He runs into his crush, the uh-huh. grad student, it, like he feels like fucked him over. And then he sees the guy that was like his competitor. And then he has that connection with Paul Dano that they were kind of paired up throughout. So maybe there's something about the Nietzsche Proust connection as well, which makes a lot of sense. Cause a lot of post Nietzsche scholars in the French tradition, Deleuze, Foucault, Sartre, etc., etc. They uh, talk a lot about Proust, so there's something interesting there as well. So I, I was going to ask if there was like an ADD yeah, relationship I, with those guys. I mean, I think that he learns a life's worth <laughs> living to him, and that he's going to let loose like uh, like little Olive, you know. And like, <laughs> all right, fuck it. Like, like, why am I so uptight? Is kind of how I saw his arc. Yeah, 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 yeah. Raymond, what what were you gonna say there? You were wondering about oh, the eight. No, of no, I uh, I just off of what you were saying with the the relationship between Nietzsche and Proust, with um, how they're perceived or their their kind of proximity in uh, in uh, philosophy circles. That um, is there a, a a lot of A to B migration there, where folks folks think of Nietzsche as like a gateway to Proust. Yeah, I don't know about a gateway, but like maybe like uh, like parallel parallel brothers in arms or something like that mm-hmm. like conceptually um there's a couple of interesting things about god in this that i noticed like you've got paul dano jesus was big, wrong jesus was wrong <laughs> obviously nietzsche sure. popularized god is dead but then the the mom like when the dad dies you know talks about like you know if god wants to take him and then olive has that question for um, for Steve Carell, you know, do you think there's a heaven? And then Steve Carell has this really kind of cute repl- response, and he's like, you know, like, do you think we all get in? And she goes, absolutely, kind of, right? So there's something also about... He has some, about... Great, some great moments with her, just in general. Yeah. Yeah. What do, what do you think about the kind of tensions there between, I don't know, is this just normal family disagreements, or is there something well, there? Well, I, I like um I like the, the stuff where... Uh, when they're sitting around at uh, the fake Denny's, whatever it's called in the movie, and and she orders waffles a la mode, and Steve Carell just trying to you know make the best of the situation, just goes, "Hey, you know what a la mode actually means? It means in the fashion and blah blah blah." And then Greg Kinnear, who is you know he's just doing his job uh, acting up there on screen, and he is a fine actor, but he just goes, uh, "Steve Carell, shut up" or whatever, and it's. It's stuff like that where I'm like, he's so cartoonishly awful, that character, that the, it really is one of those things that's tough 
It's tough for me to take certain aspects of the movie seriously when it's like, yeah, there's just no grace. There's no finesse to any of this. It's just like this guy is the is just a, a stereotype of this sort of, you know, onstage blowhard and very obviously insecure in his own self and, and what have you. And it's I, I don't know. I think uh, that that's one of the reasons I don't find this movie all that interesting is just everything is just right there on the surface. Um, you know, that they, there is this sort of aesthetic fascination with these philosophers. There, there, there are things that like, uh, are hinted at with wardrobe, but they're not hinted at in a subtle way. Like he's just wearing a t-shirt that says Jesus was wrong, which is a very funny shirt, but it's one of those things. It's like, I don't know that that requires a whole lot of scrutiny with regards to what it says about him. The one, the one character whom I really, really love because I do think his performance in this just speaks volumes with relatively little screen time, is Dean Norris as the the motorcycle cop that pulls them over. And he just... <laughs> who knows what the hell his deal is? At the very, he's just a stupid, dipshit, belligerent cop. You know, who's, who's ever heard of that? Um, and then as soon as he sees these nudie mags, he gets so earnest and it's like the one thing that he's, it's not just a matter of like boys being boys and guys talking to each other or whatever. The, the terms in which he speaks about like these, like the, the one magazine is just called like jugs or whatever. And he's looking at great, he, he's looking at the magazine. He's looking at Greg Kinnear. He goes, God, I love this stuff. And he's just being he's just being so sincere. And it doesn't even seem like skeevy or whatever. It kind of like undercuts the humor of it in a way that I actually found quite winning. Um and there's just this this whole exchange between the two of them where he's like, Oh, look at this, look at this gal. And just like these 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 women are like he has absolutely no shame about it. And he, you know, he does them a solid, oh, don't worry, I'm not gonna bust you, you know. This is uh this this'll stay between us. This is just between us guys or whatever. But the way that he's talking about it is like I think Dean Norris is a wonderful actor. And I, I wonder how much of that was in the script and how much of it was his choice to be like, I'm not going to play this like a, a total scumbag. I, I, this is like, he's, he very clearly has a, an appreciation of this. <laughs> like, and he just wants to, yeah, he just wants to share that with, with one of his fellow men. And that, that's my favorite scene in the movie. Everyone's got a Proust, yeah, exactly. right? That's his Proust, his uh, Jugs magazine. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the bit about Greg Kinnear. Uh, my partner turned to me and she was like, oh, I hate him during that dining scene. She's like, I didn't remember that he was this, like, bad. And I think that was something I did wonder is, like, how come he's able to get away with some of the shit he's able to get away with? Like, fat shaming his his daughter the way that he does or, like, being so shitty to um, – to Steve Carell's character. Like, the fact that they let that conversation go... Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not used to being in a family that is that type of confrontational with, like, passive aggression and snippy and sniping at each other all the time. I'm just not used to being around that. So I see it, and I'm like, come on. People don't communicate like that. Like, that's just a little too, like, we're trying to make him, like, a (laughs) kind of bad guy, you know? A little bit. Yeah. I guess that's the thing is like there are certainly assholes out there. There are certainly like emotionally abusive husbands and fathers. Um, and I'm I'm sure the things that they do and say are far worse than what Greg Kinnear does on screen in this. But I think this, this movie is like it doesn't have the grace to fully realize him as a character or as a human. But then it expects us to like give a shit when his his book deal blows up or like... 
I'm not invested in his plight in any way because he's just an asshole and and he's an uncomplicatedly an asshole. He doesn't really have any redeeming characteristics until the movie decides he needs to be redeemed and then he goes up and dances with his daughter and it just it just feels very hollow. And I think that's one of the things that I have an issue with uh, the film across the board is just that it's like it's just a lot of characters serving as conflict engines and it, you know it's I know that. Like, this is the same thing John Ford said with Stagecoach. is like, well, why why don't the Native Americans shoot the horses? And his answer is, well, then there'd be no movie. And I understand that to a point. But the beginning of this movie is just like, just tell the grandpa he's not going. And then the mom and the daughter go. And then I know that then there'd be no movie. But it's very, very difficult for me to engage with these people as humans when they refuse to have human conversations or act like humans when they encounter conflict um like literally just one one brief conversation that wasn't defined by cartoonish hysteria would have completely settled any conflict in this movie immediately um and from that point on it's just like all right well we can always count on them to do the most plot convenient thing from here on out i guess I bought it personally. Uh, the the I, I feel like I know or I've seen a lot of dads like Greg Kinnear's character, you know, that are just super workaholic obsessed and stuff. So to answer your question, Austin, I do think that there are people like that that maybe not obviously like you're saying as conveniently movie cliche cartoony. But I don't know. I think Greg Kinnear is a good actor and he pulled off the character, but maybe different strokes for different folks. Um, real quick, uh, uh, to go back to my point earlier about your point about, uh, it being a, uh, capitalist critique, right? I know you were kind of saying earlier, yeah, you know, the grandpa's line, a real loser is someone who's so afraid of not winning. He doesn't even try. Now I interpret that line as like, like you, you at least, you can't just be so pissed off at the system that you're just not going to do anything. You should just at least go do something that you want to do and uh, do it the best you can in your own way. But maybe sometimes within the system, do you, uh, uh, do you disagree with that? No, I think I like that. Um, I thought that was actually a really sweet moment because one, she's, she's starting to get nervous about competing. And then two, she, she knows she's obsessed with these pageants. She knows what's expected of her. Right. And I think it's the kind of like fear that others aren't going to validate her. Right. And so she needs this validation and she's thinking about backing out. And his encouragement is kind of like, hey, you can you can let the pressures of this system squash you. Um, And then I would say you can just incorporate into it. But we also know that the grandpa doesn't love the the kind of pressures of the system because he's like fuck it it's all kind of meaningless at the end of life anyway but he's like but nevertheless you still try you get up there and you do you do your best and and i kind of interpret that as sort of like you kind of throw caution to the wind and you experiment in the process and she's a fucking six or seven year old or whatever she is you know she Mm -hmm. doesn't have to have her ideals sorted but learning to kind of face confrontation and face obstacles and overcome them i think that's a really powerful lesson in life and it's a kind of nietzschean lesson too like nietzsche to me is is kind of all over this thing you know um and i think this this actually does tie into when the father doesn't get the book deal or the the fucking contract or whatever it is i i don't give a shit about it like but i think what's interesting is if we think about the beauty contest as being the thing that frames everything um there's this great there's this great example 
by economist John Maynard Keynes, who talks about like the logic of speculation. And he says, this is how speculation works on the market, right? He says, it's like a beauty contest. Now, the way that beauty contest worked in like the 1920s when he's writing in fucking England about this at the time is that there would be like a newspaper and you would have, I don't know how many, how many women, but you'd have like 10 women on there and you would vote about which one you thought was going to be, uh, was, was, was the winner of the beauty contest or whatever. He said, but actually people don't vote based on what they think. They're anticipating what somebody else is going to think. And so th this ties into something that uh, Rene Girard, anthropologist, calls mimetic rivalry. So I want what I want because you want what I want. So there's like this sense in which we're anticipating, which means we're condescending to the audience in our decisions, in our wants, and in our desires. And I think that, um, that, that the whole idea of, one, Olive's fear is because she's realizing that she has this audience that's going to be determining whether or not she's a winner or a loser, right? And then you have the father who's tied into this whole system um, about trying to be a winner. And then he realizes uh, that it's actually not him that is, uh, or that his project isn't good enough because because people don't like him or they don't know him because he means nothing. That is, he has no social capital. Like nobody gives a shit, so they're not going to invest in him because people have no desire to kind of speculate on the value of his brand because his brand is fucking meaningless because he's nobody. Even if the book is good or even if it's interesting or even if it's helpful, doesn't matter, right? Because the beauty contest of the world doesn't pay you based on your what you're good at, based on virtue. It pays you based on sort of like superficial speculations on whether or not you're going to be popular and received by the larger ethos. And so I think all of these things kind of come together. And then what can you do in the midst of all of that? You either fall apart and you kill yourself. You check out and you do heroin. You take a vow of silence and you say, fuck it, and you freak out. You buy into the system. Um, you become a mom, uh, like the, the, the kind of like overworked housewife who's trying to do too much, right, and trying to manage too much. Or you're an idealist and like, just what, dance. <laughs> or you're a fucking idealist and you ultimately just dance at the end. But at least she's doing something. And I think there's yeah. something interesting in that. Uh, yeah, I, that's kind of what I think. The whole the whole film is ultimately about All right, that. Well, I think we agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get some final thoughts on this statistically average film. Um, uh, Raymond, do you have anything final that you want to say? What else is a statistically average? Let's, let's talk a little bit more. Like, do we have any? I want to. I, I really want to know because I don't think you're wrong, and I think this is actually a really interesting. As much as you might think, it's just kind of like a and eh, whatever. I think you, it's a really you, poignant, poignant critique. When you were talking about mimetic reasoning and stuff, it, funny enough, that reminds me of like every year there's a spate of articles with like anonymous Oscar voter tells us about their selection process or whatever. And I remember the year that 12 Years a Slave came out, there were a ton of people who, and this, I think 12 Years a Slave is a wonderful film, not one that I would want to watch again for different reasons. Um, but there, there are, there, there were a ton of people when that movie came out who said like, oh, well, I didn't even see it, but I voted for it for best picture because it just seemed like that's what I should do. Um, and this, and, and, and it, this weirdly is like, I don't want to say that, like, obviously this movie was an underdog, and, you know, like I said, it, it, it comes kind of prepackaged with that narrative, like a lot of movies of this ilk do, this sort of, like, twee, ersatz, Wes Anderson indie exercises that, uh, you know, like I said, they, they uh, become sleeper hits, and then they're able to ride that, that sort of wave of goodwill into a handful of nominations, and, and this one ended up winning Best Screenplay. Uh, I don't know what it was up against, whatever. When, when I say this is, like, the most statistically average movie ever made. I mean that in probably like if you if you lined up every single movie from like Boondock Saints being the worst 
to like children of men being maybe the best this is the fulcrum this is like the exact middle of movies wow and what so a rating system when I, <laughs> when I say that i i don't mean like oh there's a bunch of uh, of like perfectly statistically most average movies in the world i mean that this is the exact middle of movies i don't like this exact movie is not movies of its ilk and, and what have you i can't think of a movie that i feel less about like I, <laughs> and I, I i'm not trying to be glib or reductive in any way i think there are some good scenes, there are some bad scenes, and it immediately leaves my mind the moment I'm finished watching it. It just, it, uh, I'm not, I'm not mad about it. It's just, I, I can't, I can't care about it at all. It just exists, and uh, I don't know. What's, the, what, what's a philosophical framework to, to sort of uh, articulate that, Austin? Just the, the acceptance that, the, like, uh, yeah, it just, it just is, it is what it is. Like <laughs> I. I, I genuinely, like I, I said earlier, you keep you keep bringing it back to me and thinking like I don't have some deep critical analysis on this thing. I don't think I don't think it's worth it. Like I don't think there's any. It's just it just is what it is. It's just a, it's just a a fine movie, and I want to just go back to not being aware of its existence until ten <laughs> years from now we revisit it with Riley Ann Spa. <laughs> See, <laughs> yeah. This is see, but this is what I think is interesting. I think the designation of something being statistically average is an exceptional remark because we're so used to something having to like register on the Richter scale. So if something is just average, innocuous, I think that's interesting. That actually becomes an exceptional critique, right? Yeah, I don't know. I was I was reading an article forever ago about background radiation. And how there are certain certain places near Chernobyl that have essentially equivalent background radiation to like living in Los Angeles, California, and I just and reading that was just fascinating to me. And this movie to me is just like it's just background radiation. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like it's. I mean, there are people you could look at this and be like, oh, that is. That that is a, a a harbinger of like the death of cinema and indie aesthetic because this movie this type of movie essentially became a subgenre post like this and Juno, you know tons of crummy movies like fucking Me Earl and the Dying Girl exist just because this like they're made in this movie's image, um, or you could look at it and be like well you know things could have gone better but what a testament to like the will of man <laughs> like it's, you know this hips reflex this, this 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 movie is just this movie is just out there and i don't i i don't think about it and i don't i like for me to have to worry about it or think about it, it, it you know it was just it would it would take up too much effort and too much time. I, I just don't think it's worth okay. it. This movie is just what it is. What it is. I, I, I'm I, I've been looking at my through my IMDb list because as you know, I rank every movie I've ever seen on my and so I've been going, going through the sevens and the sixes, which is the perfectly just so-so era era. And the two movies I've thought of that are statistically average to me are Blades of Glory. <laughs> 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 Whoa. So I, I statistically Were you John it went in one ear hole and out the other, and I never thought of it again. And get him to the Greek, but I think that the reason that 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 this one I think feels statistically average is because there's literally someone from every demographic in this bus represented. You know, like little girl. Yeah, like, this it's is, like you yeah, like this they're is... all melted together. You look at this, you're know, like, okay, if you were going for a four quadrant movie, you have it on the poster here. 
And uh, it just looks and feels like what you're saying, uh, the statistically average movie. That the this is, this is like on, um, on MasterChef when Gordon Ramsay makes them make 20 perfect heart, or, uh, fried eggs or whatever. It's like, great, now I have a, fri- now I have a perfect fried egg. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's, it, uh, it's not that ambitious. It's just, it's, it, it's a perfectly fine version of what it's trying to be. You just, this movie, I think that's the thing about this that's so vexing in a way, perhaps, is that I, I think this is maybe the best possible version of this script. It's just... I think the actors are all good. It's directed consummately. There's, I mean, I, I don't well, think you could do any worse or any better with this thing as long as you get the fucking cameras to turn I, on. I, as the apologist for this movie, I, I think that it's better than y'all are saying. However, I will say that, the, that kind of the genre, and I hadn't really thought of how to articulate it till now, but like, yeah, th- there is this subgenre of, of movies that are like smarter than your average popcorn movie but then dumber than your average like art house movie sort of but it's like totally middle brow like where it's like you know it's for this perfectly middle you know uh (laughs) mainstream audience and yeah i i'm convinced this movie is statistically average you but i like it raymond (laughs) fucking a I wish there was more. Wow. Like yeah, it. me too. I'm, I think a good double, it is, a double I, bill would be to watch Godard's film Socialisma and then watch <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine. And you know, um, yeah. Okay. It is, so neither, less, it less is neither critique nor praise. I think you should yeah. watch a, a good <laughs> double. A good double feature would be Danny Boyle's Sunshine and Little Miss Sunshine back to back. Well, Sun Sunshine Funny. is a, a statistically <laughs> yeah. great movie. All right. I love that fucking movie. All right, we got to go ahead and wrap up and uh, and whatnot, but I do want to make sure that everybody knows out there that even though we're not doing the mailbag at the end of our episodes, we will have mailbag episodes uh, periodically. So please keep sending us your questions, your thoughts. What do you think are other statistically average films? Email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Or, of course, you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Follow us over on Twitter, smtm underscore pod. That's smtm underscore pod. Also, make sure you check out our homies over at Culture Binge. Check out the Squanch podcast, etc., etc. You know the deal. Next week... We're going to be watching Chloe Zhao's The Writer. Raymond, can you give us uh, an elevator pitch on why people should love The Writer and why they should watch it? This was your your choice. Yeah, this was my choice. I can't presume to say why you should love the movie, but uh, why you should watch it is I think it's, very, um, it's a very bold exercise in, uh, in blending drama and documentary. And I, uh, I, I think it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful film. Yeah, and for those of you who may be like, I know that name, Chloe Zhao, it's because she just did The Eternals, and we talked uh, about that on the podcast. Did we? We did, right? We talked yeah. about that on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, we we did Eternals and Nomadland on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So that'll be next week. We will be talking about the writer. So if you can check that out beforehand and join along the conversation, uh, that's pretty much it. Where can people find y'all on the internet? Uh, Ryan? Ryan's Game Show on Twitter and uh, Instagram and YouTube and all that stuff. And Ryan Shorts. Sick. And Raymond. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. 
Awesome. And I'm uh, on Twitter at Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Owls at Dawn is back, mother effers. So we've had four episodes that have been released so far. Uh, we did an episode on Don't Look Up. We talk about whether or not you can have meaning in a virtual world, looking at the philosophy of David Chalmers, uh, amongst kind of just other things. And, you know, like we normally do, just BS about philosophy with my co-host Troy. So check that shit out. Owls and, at um, Dawn. One other thing. Uh, Douglas Trumbull just passed away. Uh, uh, we, talk, we talked about a little bit about the aesthetic influence of Little Miss Sunshine, and uh, Douglas Trumbull, certainly someone who had a large aesthetic influence on the, uh, the film industry in general. Um, he, uh, he was the uh, 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 art director on uh, Blade Runner and um, Silent Running and you know, uh, just a, a, a visionary. 2001, A Space Odyssey worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Just, just a, a, a visionary VFX pioneer. So uh, yeah, RIP, Douglas Trumbull. Yeah, rest in peace, rest in peace. Oh, All right, everybody, on that somber note, we love you. Go watch good movies. Maybe go watch a Trumbull film, you know? Hold somebody tight. Do a little dance. Read Nietzsche and the Burbs by Lars Eyre. Uh, take a vow of silence. Um, take a Nazarite vow. I don't know. Just do something because you know what? The real loser in life is someone who try. doesn't get up and yeah. fucking try. That's right, Austin. Right, Ryan? Just try. All right, we're out of here. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been a bunch of super freaks. Super freaks. We're super freaking.